0: Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Frances O'Connor, an actor I first saw in the Australian romantic comedy Love and Other Catastrophes, and then in Patricia Rosima's Mansfield Park, Harold Ramis' Bedazzled, and Steven Spielberg's AI. You've probably seen her in a whole bunch of stuff since then. Last year, she came to TIFF with her directorial debut, Emily starring Emma Mackey as the young Emily Bronte, whose cloistered adolescence and tumultuous inner life led to the writing of Wuthering Heights. It opened theatrically earlier this year, and it's available on digital and on-demand in Canada as of today. You should check it out. Francis picked Beautiful, Alejandro gonzalez Iñárritu's 2010 drama starring Javier Bardem, has a Barcelona father whose life falls to pieces when he's diagnosed with terminal cancer, though things weren't exactly great for him beforehand since he made his living on the backs of Chinese and Senegalese migrant workers, and that bill is rapidly coming due. Desperate to secure a future for his young children, he pushes himself to the very limits of his endurance, which is the sort of drama Iñárritu loves. As it turns out, so did Francis. This is Someone Else's Movie.
1: I mean, Beautiful was kind of a, I mean, I love Inaratu's work. For me, he's uh, very inspirational in terms of how he tells stories and how he shoots stories. And um, But Beautiful was actually a touchstone for Emily in terms of how it was shot and that kind of juxtaposition between something being real and gritty and then, a kind of atmosphere of something supernatural, but but always kind of grounded in this reality of the character's emotions. And that they're kind of connected to the emotions of the character. So that's why I specifically liked beautiful for in terms of Emily. Yeah.
0: Okay. Cause the connection to me was the sense of I mean, you just said it really, but it was it was the sense that characters are alone with themselves against these magnificent landscapes. And trying to communicate. And in in Beautiful, ultimately, Uxbal doesn't succeed, I don't think. He's leaving behind the clues for his children to grow up and understand him. But in Emily, it's all about pouring herself onto the page and and making herself understood, which we won't see until the film is over.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in a way it's kind of like um, what I liked about Beautiful is about the character kind of paring back everything and accepting – his fate, in a way, accepting this transition from life to death, and in a way, I feel like with Emily, there's a kind of similar, kind of similar thing because she kind of crosses over. No spoiler alert, but she kind of crosses over into death by the end of the film and leaves this thing for her sister, and um, and there's a kind of, uh, I think in beautiful, there's a sense of um, Javier Bardem just kind of letting go of things just letting go of the baggage and of life and just coming back into himself and I feel like Emily does the same thing I mean if I'm analyzing it not that I was intentionally comparing this to beautiful more making it but just that she also kind of does the same thing there's no struggle anymore she's kind of at peace with the choices that she's made because she's fulfilled herself I think you know she's really come into a place now at the end of the film where she's just really herself. And and she kind of is able to kind of let go at that point and give her sister this gift of also her being herself, I guess.
0: Well, whereas beautiful is a story about, I mean, there's also a great deal of guilt floating around in beautiful, reference guilt about the, yeah. the migrants who've died, yeah. um, and that whether or not Oksvald is responsible for it. And this, I think, is is the Greatest compliment I can pay to Javier Bardem is that he never lets that leave his eyes. He's haunted throughout in such an eerie and powerful way uh, th- by responsibility. Yeah, by
1: him at the very end, I think he's even watching himself. He's against the wall, and we kind of close. We come right into him, and um, yeah, that it's just magic. What he, whatever he does, is i mean that's good acting
0: yeah it's sort of the mystery of the character that gets unlocked at the very end when we understand what he's been carrying and how but he's i i mean i have to admit i blow hot and cold on on films i find sometimes that he's very very showy in a way that i yeah i mean the whole revenant thing where he's Punishing his crew and punishing himself. And the only way to shoot it is for an hour a day in Magic Hour. And it just, you know, as a result, it yeah. pushes the schedule over and the ground is melting and then the snow is gone. So they had to go chase the snow. It all just seems very, very much to me. And I, I worry he's going but to hurt himself. You
1: <laughs> when you watch uh, The Revenant, the there's ecstatic truth, moments in those that are just cinematic genius, you look at like this, the scene where uh Leonardo DiCaprio goes over the edge of the cliff with a horse and it's I mean that whole sequence and I feel it's that thing like he's really chasing something very pure in terms of as an artist and you know in this visual medium um and I understand that feeling of like I'm not going to compromise and especially if you've got like you know you didn't know the world was going to warm up that particular year yeah it's (laughs) chase the snow and everything but uh I, I get that artistic personality. And yeah. uh, you know, and then the I think the result is the result. And it's just I think also that film is an incredibly powerful in terms of just the poetry of the imager imagery and then that, that kind of the dream. I always feel like cinema when it's really good, when I really love it, it's got this kind of um it's a slightly dream like kind of state. You know, Hitchcock does that too, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. More real than real.
1: More the real than real, yeah. And even like um even watching uh The Bardo, um, you know, which I know a lot of people kick back on, but I loved so many elements of that as well. Um,
0: but yeah. Yeah, I just find the films he makes with less money are the ones that I think are somehow.
1: You know, yeah, when he has I mean, fewer choices,
0: sure. he he's a more he feels more, more direct and impactful to me that the movies hit me harder and beautiful. It's just, I mean, it's a big production in terms of its narrative scope, but it really is just one person for so much of it. And that's where Bardem just effortlessly, you know, holds me and, and just is the most, no matter what is going on in that film, he's the, his face is the most interesting element and it's just so powerful.
1: Yeah, yeah, that kind of intimate relationship between um, Javier Bardem and the camera and Ineratu, that kind of uh, dynamic, I think, Mm -hmm. is just really so powerful. But then I also saw that in, um, I feel like, in um, The Revenant, I really saw that as well. There's that same kind of sense of poetry and humanity and the personal next to, and I get that thing that's, you know, um, that uh, filmmakers want to be ambitious with the stories they tell because you, I guess I've only made one film which was incredibly challenging and it probably doesn't look like it could be challenging, but it, it was. And uh, But I understand that thing of like already I'm thinking, okay, for my next thing, I want to push myself. So I understand why filmmakers do that in terms of like just the scope of The Revenant compared
0: to other films. Sure, sure. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, the effort is the reward in a lot of ways. I think with a, with yeah. a project that big,
1: the, the process. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, I always feel very moved by his films, e- even in like, um, even in um, the Bardo, which I know some people found a little verbose. I still felt like there was something very human and beautiful in there.
0: Yeah, I I liked it he works to articulate things that he, even he may not understand when he starts shooting. Yeah. And I have to respect that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought what was interesting with that was I went to the London film festival. They did a a screening at the Royal festival hall of, um, of Bardo. And it was like a a huge screen. It's just the best place to watch a a cinema. I think when they do it for the festival. And um, he was talking about how, He's been getting into meditation, and he feels like he wants it to affect how he tells story. Um, and that's why he felt like he didn't want people to be emotionally too right in there, like they, he like they would have been perhaps in beautiful because um, he want pe- he wants people to have a slight distance, I guess, in terms of you know, that experience of like meditating. And I was wondering, is that cinema though? Like is cinema, you know, because if, if cinema is supposed to replicate the human condition, then that is that is in some ways a reactive state, you know what I mean? So it's just like I was interesting, like I, I understand how you evolve as a human and that you, you want that to reflect your cinema, but
0: I thought, yeah, that was interesting. That is. Yeah. I mean, David Lynch is famously into Transcendental Meditation. And, and you can sort of see the points in, in his career where his films become slower and more deliberative. Um, I'm thinking just the pivot from Wild at Heart to Lost Highway, where oh yeah, the most disturbing thing in that film, and maybe in all of his cinema, I think to me, it just hits me every time, is the scene where uh, Bill Pullman simply disappears into a wall into the shadows and they swallow oh, him up and yeah. and it's unnerving without any reason to be. It's just a, I mean, it could be absurdist if you played it differently, but he locks us in that moment and we are forced to breathe through it and it's just the most unnerving thing. And then Mulholland Drive also has these protracted hallucinatory sequences that feel like, you know, maybe hour three of a fasting meditation where you just hit yeah. something. He's yeah. he's written about it and it's it's really quite fascinating. I I'm I'm not sure. I mean it is a kind of cinema, obviously, clearly, because we're experiencing yeah. it all together in, in the dark, but but it is something too that's like trying to create an additional level of consciousness through film.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's just like what is the point of cinema? And is it is it about I mean, ultimately you want your audience to walk away with uh a feeling and a sense of meaning as well, mm. you know, and how I, I feel like sometimes films, I think, almost isolate themselves from their audience and I really believe it's important to tell a story that is going to affect people or make them reflect on their life or give them something I think. And I feel that very much with David Lynch. Like even if it's not linear, it's still, you still walk away with something that maybe that night you're going to dream about. Or do you know what I mean? I love all that.
0: Yeah. Films that infect you. Um,
1: Yeah. That really infect you. Did you say? Yeah. 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 That really get into your consciousness. It's kind of great.
0: Yeah. I think, what was it? God, it's 40 years now. David Cronenberg made Videodrome and it's all about the idea that a video signal, I mean, effectively gives you a brain tumor, but the the way it expresses itself is that hallucinations are triggered. And, and I saw that at, I think I must've been 15 or 16 and I was just a little too young for it. And it's never left me. And the idea that a communicative device can, can ruin you, can, can not only alter your perceptions, but, but alter your body completely. is just one of those things that I think we're actually getting there at this point. With, uh, I do.
1: Too. I feel like our brain, uh, brain and, and neural pathways are being affected by uh, how we, how much time we spend on our devices. Yeah, sure. social
0: media and brain chemistry. Yeah,
1: definitely, um, it's very it's frightening. Yeah, I think that's why I love cinema too, because I think you're forced to kind of put your phone down and to just sit in the dark with a community of people, um, hopefully not eating too much popcorn and. Uh, and, and watch a story together, you know, and I feel like it's something that's been with us for, like, what is it, 120 years, kind of cinema's been with us. And so um, I, ho- I, ho- I hope it I hope it stays with us. I hope we don't, you know, because it's such an individualistic kind of society now and we like to have our, our laptops with us by ourselves to watch something. So I hope we don't stay. I, ho- I hope that cinema stays. I think it's so important that it does.
0: Hey, it's Norm, interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about Paramount's new 4K editions of the Picard-era Star Trek movies and Warner's 4K releases of The Maltese Falcon, Rebel Without a Cause, and Cool Hand Luke. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. It turns out I have to write about movies. Come check it out. I think if we survive the pandemic, if theaters survive the pandemic, I think we'll be fine. It, it might yeah. evolve um, yeah. and we'll be chasing these niche experiences. Like there's a there's a Canadian filmmaker who's made a movie called Skinemarink. I'm, I'm not sure you've heard of it, but it's become a Is minor cult sensation. Skinemarink. Skinemarink. It's a children's song here yeah, from Sharon Amen. Lois and Bram. Uh, and it's a horror film about children who wake up, two small children who wake up in in their home realize their father isn't around and that all the doors and windows in their house have disappeared. And it's shot in noisy, grainy video. It looks like the 1990s. They're disturbing public domain, children's cartoons playing on the only television set. And then eventually they start hearing voices, but it's, it is that sort of dream state. It's designed to put you off immediately. And um, it's become a minor sensation. Uh, It's just landed on shutter. So I think more people will be seeing it, but, but, It's been selling out theaters uh, because it is such a a such a strange and exceptional experience that people either love or hate people either plug into or despise. Mm -hmm. And I found it absolutely fascinating uh, formally because it isn't it feels like a new way of communicating is starting to happen. But you have to be locked in the dark with it. You have to see it and be overwhelmed on a big screen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh, that sounds great.
0: Yeah. And perversely enough, I think that's the same thing Inaridu is chasing. I mean, he's doing it in a much more formal, you know, like large format, 70 millimeter sort of way, but he wants to envelop us in the stories on a level that no one else ever has, I think, which is maybe the thing that's starting to put me off too, that his scale is is expanding to a point that I find almost obnoxious. But when he gets away from that, or when he returns to his original concerns you know people landscape camera motion that's beautiful that's the movie that that's the movie I want to see more of from him and maybe that's on me because I'm just asking him to go back to the thing I like where he's following his own path yeah
1: like that people say about Woody Allen your earlier funnier, funnier yeah. films <laughs> which is tough because then he's like well I don't, I don't want to be I want to evolve and change and I think I guess that's about the relationship between the artist and the public uh
0: yeah. you know at- of course, it's also a straw man he created for himself, right? Like, he he's the one who wrote that line.
1: Yeah, that is true. That is true. And, um, I mean, I think it's interesting too, you know, Hitchcock, um, so many of his films feel very much like stream of consciousness and like the dream state, and yet he would never admit that. You know, like if you compare Ineratu's work with Hitchcock's, I think they're both very good, like, with narrative structure and always keeping the audience in mind as they tell the story and um the way they move through space as well in terms of just being conscious of what what the audience is thinking and feeling at any moment. I think they're both very good at that. Yeah. But I don't know it was interesting that Hitchcock he never really wanted to talk about that. He never really wanted to discuss um I remember in that the in the um you know, there's the interview book
0: with... Oh, um, the Truffaut book, yeah.
1: Yeah, the Truffaut book. And Truffaut asks him about that. He sort of says, oh, you know, so many of your films feel like they're in the dream state. And he said, oh, why? Do What do you dream? And he's like, well, I don't remember. <laughs> and I kind of love that he doesn't want to analyse his work. He just wants to make it. And he wants to keep stuff unconscious as
0: well. Yeah. And of course if you watch his films, they're seething with unconsciousness. They're their unconscious intent and and fetishism and like just the his use of blondes, if nothing else, is is textbook fetishism. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: And then he made Vertigo, which sort of deals with that and then refused to ever try to approach it again. And Lynch sort of does the same. I mean, once he entered therapy and, and discovered TM, his his symbolism became almost oblique on a on a level of whereas you know Blue Velvet is a very straightforward. As for as much as people complain that it's confusing, it's a pretty straightforward um, satire of of American ordinariness. You know, the the sort yeah, of nineteen fifties ideal. The duck on the belly of, of, yeah, there's there's not a lot of mystery to why this story is being told the way it's being told and then he a decade later has pivoted off into you know this sort of neo-noir sexual fetishistic insanity and duality of of lost highway and then remakes it in mulholland drive and his explorations just get more and more um not incomprehensible because they track there is a very clear line of what he's doing but but he just he can do anything he wants and he is doing as opposed to other filmmakers who when given you know, unlimited support just make conventional stories in increasingly lavish ways.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's, I mean, all well, these guys are artists, aren't they? And they're really, but their, their, their kind of um, medium is, is film, but they're really artists rather than like filmmakers in a, in a more conventional sense. And that's yeah. why they're so exciting. Because they're interested in, I think, in the audience's subconscious and kind of emotional life. And that's why, and that's what I love about cinema. I think that's why cinema is so powerful—is when it does affect people like that. It's really, I mean, and that is, I mean, the thing about cinema—it can, it's a kind of medium that can be, you know, you can tell a story that's just like a political thriller, or that can, or just a comforting comedy or you know can or something that's going to really freak you out like um Rosemary's baby where it does kind of get into your psyche as a as maybe as a potential mother or that so i just love that it's this kind of medium that can kind of uh it's it can be anything to anyone whether you're the filmmaker or the audience it's it's one i think it's one of the best things that we've got as humans really yeah. yeah
0: which actually gets me to your own work as a, as a filmmaker as emily because on paper this is this could be a very immediately recognizable conventional story about women in specific dresses and hats arguing over literature and and loneliness and you've made it an experiential drama about someone who is in her head the whole time for lack of a better term she we we are in there with her In a way Mm. that a lot of other films, especially period films, especially biographical fiction, don't don't they're not it's not that they don't allow for it, they're not interested in it. So yeah, how did that come like what when did you know that was your way in?
1: I guess I never really thought of it as a period drama. I just thought of it as a story that I wanted to tell about this character that I loved and kind of grown up with Emily, who was this kind of had had her own sense of self that was different than a lot of other people around her and and i knew i wanted to tell the story about an underdog kind of coming to realize herself and find her voice and um and i wanted to do that you know i've kind of grown up with cinema i'm a cinema geek or film geek and so you know i now have my heroes and i i I have my taste in terms of how i like the storytelling that really affects me And so, yeah, I did want to do a film that felt kind of handheld, intimate, and very much just centred on the introvert in the room who maybe other people aren't looking at but we're looking at and we're with. That's who we're conscious of. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And for, yeah, and then to have moments where it becomes more uh, experiential and then moments where we're distanced,
0: yeah. Yeah. And Emma Mackey is someone who, I would not necessarily cast to play an introvert because she's just so present in everything that that um, I mean, I I discovered her through sex education, as as I expect most people Mm -hmm. will have. And she's always pulling focus, whether she means to or not, you just can't not look at whatever she's doing in the frame. She's just so there. And then, of course. In Emily, I realized that that's the appeal, right? We're looking at her when she's not doing anything and and trying not to do something as a character. Yeah.
1: But that's also where you place the camera. I mean, sure. camera. You you with. I mean, with film, you kind of invent that narrative that you want to look at her, but the camera's on her. And if you've got a big fat close up on her here, and then everyone else is in a wide shot. Like, she's dominating the scene. Of I mean, that's thing about cinema. But still saying that you want to look at Emma Mackey. There's something about her face, and it's not just that she's beautiful. There's something in her, her thought, the way her thoughts kind of go across her face and things you want to, you do want to watch her. But I think she is actually. I mean, I'm not sure, but I think she does have introverted tendencies, Emma, and, you know, she's a very private person. Um, and I think it's the tension of that that's also kind of interesting in Emily,
0: perhaps. Yeah. Well, the seance sequence is the thing. And I, I won't spoil anything, don't worry, I'll,
1: Yeah, yeah, I know.
0: But the, um, the seance sequence where she's playing the push and pull of really, really wanting to participate and also being terrified of it, I just thought that was, I mean, the, this this big round table with so many people involved. And I was just honing in on what she's doing because it's so – it's so human. It's, you know, she doesn't want to do it, but she's fascinated by it. And, and just the contact yeah. on her forehead is so interesting.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean, because we're kind of reading her face all the way up to the point when she puts the mask on, and then we can't read anything on her face. Yeah. What's interesting is that you keep reading things on her face, even though it's a mask, and that the mask looks different in certain parts of that scene. And I'm like, well, what is that? Is that the, the characters around her? Or is that how we shoot it? Or I mean, it's just in, it's just interesting to put a mask on the lead character's face, and for it to still be emotional and still be frightening. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fun.
0: Yeah, and and we're about to run out of time, so I, I oh, gotta yeah, force the. Oh no, no, it's not <laughs> not your fault. Um, uh, but I want to force the last question of the podcast, which yeah. is always: um, Is there anything of beautiful that you have? homaged or referenced or stolen outright for your own work. And I was just thinking that Bardem's face is the mask in that film, that that oh, for yeah, most of much. the movie he's, you know, Xbal is not communicating the truth to people mm. uh, and ultimately carrying it himself but not able I'm to release we're it. We're the
1: only ones that know. We know the truth, but no one else knows that around him. Yeah, is a slightly, I mean, I didn't think of this when I was making it, but I think there is something slightly similar in the Emma in a lot of it. Like we see her in the mask, but then as we go through the film, her face is a little bit like a mask in that it's very still for a lot of it. And we're just watching her think. Um, and I love watching actors think too. And I'd love to just hold the camera on them, no words, and just let them process stuff because we read so much in the people's faces anyway. I think as people, and um. But we're also participating, we're kind of participating in watching someone's face and getting meaning from it. But yeah, that's really interesting that perhaps that's true. Um, yeah. But yeah, for me, I think I the thing about Inaratu's films is they're so human and they celebrate what it is to be human and what it is to be different. And he really celebrates the underdog too, which I kind of really believe in <laughs> as well. Yeah.
0: My thanks to Francis O'Connor, whose directorial debut, Emily, is now available on digital and on-demand across Canada. Thanks also to Melanie Mangatu. She knows what she did. Francis isn't on Twitter, but you can keep track of her movie at Sphere Pictures CA, and you can find Beautiful on Blu-ray from Lionsgate, and streaming free on Hoopla in Canada and Hoopla in Canopy in the U.S., and for rental or sale on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at SEMCAST, S-E-M-CAST and on the web at movie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.